We're going to continue in our series on the cross of Christ. Thank you for for praying with us and for joining us in that moment. The title of today's message is The Heart of the Cross. And uh, by the word heart, uh, I simply mean the center point and the purpose of the cross. I'm not talking about like the emotions and the emotive life of Jesus in the cross, but we're simply saying, what is the the center point, like the the purpose of the cross? Uh, And it's kind of like a part two of last week's sermon, because last week we learned that the cross was central to Jesus's mission, that the cross was central to Jesus's ministry. And so although his teaching and his healing ministries were very significant, although they were, they were radical and they were powerful and transformative, his teaching ministry, his miraculous ministry, uh, they paled in comparison to the fact that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross. You see, Jesus wasn't finished in ministry after he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Right? The Sermon on the Mount is the most famous of all the sermons in Scripture. It is, without a doubt, the greatest sermon ever preached on the face of the earth. But Jesus didn't mic drop in that moment, walk off and say, it is finished. He didn't. Right? Jesus wasn't finished after he fed the 5,000. I mean, imagine that multiplying loaves of bread and fish and feeding 5,000 people. What an amazing miracle. And he could have just walked off in the sunset, been like, you know, that's it. That was amazing. That's all, folks. Peace, right? He didn't. He wasn't finished. Jesus wasn't finished after he raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was buried, dying, decaying in a tomb. Jesus said with his words and his authority, Lazarus, arise. And that dead man came back to life. People were amazed. But Jesus wasn't finished. Do you know when Jesus was finished with his earthly ministry? When he was dying on the cross, breathing his last breaths, he says, it is finished. And then he says, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. You see, each of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, affirm the centrality of the cross. They culminate with the passion of Christ. And that's why this is Passion Week. This is a special time for us as Christians to celebrate the the suffering and the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why these gospels are often called passion narratives, right? Last week I mentioned they're not biographies. They're not just histories. They're not just stories. These are passion narratives because they're stories that all culminate, that all climax on the cross of Christ. So if Jesus's earthly ministry isn't centered on the cross, what would you say was the purpose of the cross itself, right? I mean, sorry, is, was centered on the cross, not isn't. Sorry about that, right? So think about that. I'm just gonna, we're gonna take one step further. Jesus' ministry was all about the cross. Now I'm gonna ask, what was the cross all about? What was the purpose? What was the aim of the cross? What did Jesus set out to accomplish by dying on the cross? What exactly was it that he finished? Was it for him to be an example for us, right? Was Jesus like, now I live the life that you were supposed to live, follow me, be like me? Was that his mission? Was that what the cross was about? Was it to show us how much he loved us, right? I know, I know this is an often uh, celebrated truth, and it is true. I love to say Jesus loved us to the point of death, right? But was that the center point of the cross, for Jesus to say, this is how much I love you? Was it to defeat Satan? Was the purpose of the cross to defeat 
Satan. Now, those seem like good answers, and they, they might be right in part, but none of them address the main issue, the deepest need, the core reason, the purpose of the cross. You see, we've got a greater need than just an example, a greater need than just love, greater need than just a victory before we, as we come to the cross. You see, the main purpose of the cross was simple. It's this. It's the forgiveness of sins. The main purpose, the aim, the central mission of the cross was to accomplish the forgiveness of sins. That's the heart of the cross, guys, the forgiveness of sins. And it's truly the greatest need we have in this life because whether or not you and I are forgiven of our sins, that determines our eternal destiny. It's that simple. Those who receive forgiveness in Jesus's name By the power of the cross, they receive eternal life. And those who do not will experience eternal death. That's our greatest need, church. But unfortunately, we don't realize that forgiveness in Christ is our chief need. Instead, we're like, I need a job. Instead, we're like, I need money. Or maybe you're starving right now and all you're thinking about is lunch. And you're like, I need food. Or you're lonely and you're single. You're like, I need a boyfriend or I need a girlfriend. Or you're married without kids. You're like, I need children. Whatever it might be. We have all of these things that we tell ourselves that we need. They become our main ambitions, our main pursuits. All the while, our greatest need, our eternal need, is not something like a job or a new uh, set of clothes. It's the forgiveness of sins. See, I was reminded of this, uh, uh, reminded of this truth this past week. There was uh, so much going on in the world and in our community that I kind of had a, um, a personal pastoral like, kind of sense of despair. Right? Pastors have this every once in a while. It's a kind of like a, like a mid-month crisis. We're like, oh my gosh, what am I trying to do? Right? What are we doing in this world? Because we all saw the news of Syria, right? Men, women, and children dying in the street, poisoned, poisoned by a weapon. Hearts were broken. Those images, those sounds were seared into my mind. And I felt powerless. Locally, um, I felt burdened by the multitude of people living in homelessness and poverty in the city. Guys, if you spent any time in Pasadena, any time in... um, downtown LA, Koreatown, you cannot go. You cannot go to a gas station without being hit up for money. You cannot get off a highway freeway exit without somebody holding a sign saying they're hungry, they're looking for work, God bless, anything helps. And that, 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 should, be, that should be burdensome to us, that our city experiences so much hunger, so much homelessness, so much poverty. And yet at the same time, we're like, oh, but what can we do? What can I do? What can you as a student do? What can you as a single family do? And these can be depressing. And even in our own church, I felt powerless to care for so many. So many members in our church right now are suffering from illnesses, whether personally or their loved ones, their family members. We are praying for so many people right now. And I'm asking the Lord, God, when is... When are these prayers going to be answered? We have families and people who are experiencing financial hardship, others struggling with loneliness and depression. For me as a pastor, what can I do? 
to help people in such dire needs, experiencing such real felt needs. And I was actually in the midst of uh, sharing this with my wife. You know, we were like kind of having lunch and I was just hashing out like my frustrations and my fears and my anxieties. And in the midst of that conversation, I remembered a, a, a great quote, a powerful observation made by a pastor named Kevin Young. And he wrote this. He wrote that the gospel reminds us that there's something worse than death and something greater than human flourishing. What do you think about that? When you think about Jesus and the cross, you are reminded that there's something worse than death and there's something greater than human flourishing. And the more and more I thought about that, the more and more I felt convicted, convicted again by the power of the cross, convicted again at at the fact that that it's not just food, it's not just finances, it's not just health, it's not just friendships, as valuable and as life-giving as those things are, they are not eternal. They are not our greatest need. Our greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. And now I'm not saying this just to minimize pain, suffering, and loss. Those things are real. We just prayed over tragedy. We just prayed over terror, right? That is absolutely devastating and difficult. I'm not saying this just to alleviate any sense of personal guilt or responsibility as if earthly pains don't matter. I'm not saying this just to make myself feel better because I didn't give money to the last eight homeless people I saw at the gas station, right? I'm not saying, oh, it doesn't matter because Jesus is in heaven and that's eternal life and that's good, right? Uh, This is not a cop-out, but I am saying this to remind myself and to remind you today that we might cure cancer and everybody that is cured of cancer will still die. We could fill every person's bank account with money, more money than they can ever spend. And yet God has a greater life in store for those who would receive forgiveness of sin than just an earthly, comfortable, flourishing life. Church, do you believe that? that there's something worse than death in this life and there's something greater than flourishing and success. And that's what the forgiveness of sins offers us. If we are forgiven, we have something greater than earthly flourishing. If we are not, we have eternal death awaiting us. There's nothing more important. There's nothing more consequential. And so we're gonna look at three things today in light of the Heart of the cross and the forgiveness of sins. The first thing we're going to see is the problem of forgiveness. Why it's not cheap. Why it's difficult. Why we can't presume to have it all the time. The second thing we're going to see is the purchase of forgiveness. The purchase of it. And lastly, the path to forgiveness. The path to forgiveness. So how are we going to get get forgiveness? How are we going to receive it? So three Ps. My preaching prof told me not to alliterate but I'm still alliterating, guys. So we have the problem, we have the purchase, and we have the path to forgiveness. Now, um, let's talk about the problem of forgiveness. There are actually a lot of people who don't think that the death of Jesus was really that necessary for the forgiveness of sins. I first encountered this uh, in high school. I was uh, playing soccer and uh, I was on the varsity team and a bunch of dudes were just doing uh, locker room talk. And it's so weird. Normally, high school boys in a locker room chatting it up, it's pretty perverted and really bad. For some reason, though, we're talking about Jesus, 
right? And uh, I was debating one of my friends about Jesus and uh, his death and resurrection. And he was just like, what's the point of Jesus even dying on the cross? Why can't God just forgive and love everyone, right? right? God can just forgive us. Jesus doesn't have to die on the cross. And I was like, I was only in ninth grade at that time. And I was like, I don't really know the answer to that, but I know you're wrong, right? And just to know, like, hey, that's, a, that's an okay answer, guys, right? There are times when you may not have, like, oh, the perfect Bible verse or the perfect argument, but you can know that something isn't right and you don't have to agree with them. And that was me. I was like, I, I don't know how to respond, but I know, I know there's something wrong with it. But that's the question. Did Jesus really have to die in order for God to forgive us? Couldn't God just forgive us without Christ, without the cross? Couldn't God just be the bigger person and take some of his own advice because Jesus himself tells us to turn the other cheek, right? When someone wrongs you, what are you supposed to do? Turn the other cheek. You're supposed to forgive them, right? And, and here's the thing. The requirement isn't the death of somebody, okay? So imagine this, right? If your friend lies to you, and he says, will you forgive me? And you say, yes, but somebody has to die. You'd be a creepy person, right? They would totally think you're a creepy, weird person. But that seems to be what Jesus is, or God is saying. God's saying, yes, I will forgive you of your sins, but someone has to die. And that just seems so disconnected with what Jesus and God calls us to do. See, even the disciples asked this. Peter went up to Jesus and he said, Jesus, um, teacher, when a brother sins against us, how many times must we forgive them, right? It could be the same thing over and over again. Jesus, how many times should we keep forgiving people who sin against us, who hurt us, who cheat us, who trespass against us? You know what Jesus says? He says, not seven times, but 77 times, right? You need to forgive your brother. You need to forgive your spouse. You need to forgive your friend 77 times. And that's not a literal number. That's a figurative number. That's just saying forever, right? That's what Jesus wants from us, unconditional forgiveness. But here's the thing. God doesn't seem to give that to us, right? Well, why does Jesus have to die on the cross? Why can't God just be a good, magnanimous person and say, you're forgiven because I'm a good guy, just like you're going to be a good guy when you forgive that person who jacks you? Well, long ago, a theologian named Anselm wrote that if anybody imagines if anybody imagines that God can simply forgive us as we forgive others, that person has not yet considered the seriousness of sin or the majesty of God. That's the point. If you and I think that God forgiving us of our sins is equivalent to me forgiving my wife for, you know, just being grouchy and yelling at me, or you forgiving your friend for like kind of flaking on you or, or being 30 minutes late to dinner, right? Or, or, you know, any of these earthly human relational forgiveness uh, experiences, if we think that's equivalent to what God does for us, we neither understand the sinfulness of sin or the majesty of God. John Stott, a great Anglican theologian, he wrote in his book, The Cross of Christ, this. The crucial question we must ask, therefore, is a different one. It's not why God finds it difficult to forgive, but how he finds it possible to do so at all. The problem of forgiveness is constituted by the inevitable collision between divine perfection and human rebellion, between God as he is and us as we are. 
Think about that. We're asking the wrong question. That's what John starts saying. It's not, why is forgiveness difficult for God? Why doesn't he just give it to all of us? You know what he's saying? The real question is, how can it happen at all? How can a perfectly holy, righteous, just, good, sovereign God forgive a wayward, rebellious, idolatrous people like us at all? There's the disconnect. There's the problem. Not, God, why don't you just forgive everybody? You see, we think it should be simple that God would just forgive us. But when we reflect upon the true sinfulness of God's God, uh, sinfulness of man and God's majestic divinity, this shouldn't seem possible at all. Scripture defines our sinfulness in the following ways. I just want to give us a couple of passages to, to just kind of reflect upon uh, you and I and our hostility against God. Paul writes this in Romans 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Okay, this is us. The mind is, is on the flesh, right? We're dwelling, we're fixed on the flesh, and this mind is not at peace with God. We are not comrades with God. We are hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law, and it cannot. 1 John 3, 4 Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, okay? And lawlessness is what? It's doing whatever you want. It's being right in your own eyes and at the core, you are rejecting the law of God. And when you reject God's law, you're also rejecting the lawgiver. And that's God, right? You reject the law of God, you reject the lawgiver, And so this is what all of us are doing. We are making a practice of sinning. We're refusing the reign of God. We're saying, God, we're not gonna follow you. We're gonna go our own way. And then God has a response. God has a response. And scripture describes God's response to our sin in the following way. Psalm 5, verse four to five. Behold, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. You know what the psalmist is saying? God is not okay with your wickedness and with your sin. He doesn't love you so much that he'll dwell and tolerate all of your evil. You know what actually he does? He hates our evil and he hates evil doers. And so that's me. That, that, that me in my rebellion, God isn't like, oh, I love Michael in all of his sinful ways. No, he hates Michael in all of my sinful ways because he is light and in him there is no darkness. Isaiah 59 verse one, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But, okay, Isaiah's point is this. It's not that God can't save you. It's not that God can't hear you. It's not that God can't forgive you, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That is the effect of sin in your life. That is the effect of sin in our lives. It separates us from God. It makes us deaf and dull, deaf and dumb, deaf and blind to the word, the truth, the presence of God. Our sins have hidden his face, right? We just don't know him. We cannot love him. We cannot follow him. 
We are blind from him. So see, church, reconsider your sin. Your sin is not just a passive thing. It's not a momentary lapse in judgment. Sin is intentional rebellion against the reign and rule of God. You know what sin does? It divorces us from his life-giving presence. See, God is this perfect lawgiver, right? He's good. All of his laws are good. All of his laws are, are, are for his glory, for us to flourish as humans, as brothers and sisters in this world. And what we've done is like, not your law, not your ways. We want ours. We don't want you to be a king. We want to be our own kings. We don't want you to reign and rule over us. We want to do it over our own lives. We have overthrown him with our own lawlessness. And that's called tyranny, guys. That's called mutiny. That's called treason. And did you guys know that in every nation, in just about every modern nation, treason, it's not a slap on the wrist. In the US, it's punishable by death, right? Punishable by death. If you get like a, if you do treason light, the minimum sentence in the US is five years. And if it's a truly heinous act of treason, it is punishable by death. Well, friends, ours is a cosmic treason against the creator of the universe. What do we deserve? Okay. If treason against an earthly, worldly nation is punishable by death, what is the punishment? What is a just punishment for treason against God? What is the just thing for God to do in response to our sin? You see, friends, we must not forget the fact that justice is one of God's attributes that God is a judge, God is a king, and he is good, he is loving, he is merciful, he is gracious, but he's also righteous and just. And so if there is a judge, and if there is a trial, and if there is a guilty person standing before that judge, guilty of murder, guilty of treason, guilty of, of whatever it might be, what is, a go- what is a good judge supposed to do? Say, hey, like I'm friends with your dad, I'll let you off. Or, oh, I'm in a good mood today and I'll let you off, right? You, you know, your victims, don't worry about them. All the people that you killed, you know, it's all good. I'm in a nice mood today. That's not a good judge, right? That's actually a terrible judge. It's good for the person who just got off, but there is no justice. There is no righteousness. There is no truth in that kind of judge. And so let us not belittle our God and say, God, forget your justice. Just give us all forgiveness. The just thing for God to do is to pour out his wrath upon us. The just thing for him to do is to give us over to our sins, to abandon us. But the amazing thing is this, God doesn't do that. He doesn't leave us to our own enslavement. He doesn't leave us in our own rebellion, in our own lawlessness. Instead, God sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to the cross in order to purchase forgiveness and purchase salvation for us. Now, how has forgiveness been purchased? We who have sinned and are unable to save ourselves, how? How does God do it? If it's not just goodwill, if God is not just like, oh, like I'm going to be really kind, really cool, really generous, I'm going to forgive you guys. That's not how it is accomplished. Theologians have often used the phrase, it's through satisfaction, through substitution. Okay, forgiveness comes 
by satisfaction through substitution. What do we mean by these two phrases? Satisfaction. Uh, Let's read Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 to 18. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, it's going to go up on the screen. Deuteronomy 32, 16 to 18. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Deuteronomy is written by Moses, and Moses is talking to his people. This is right before Israel is about to go into the promised land. Moses is giving this final sermon. Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. He's going to die. And he's saying, Israel, this, these are your people. These are the sins of your forefathers. These are the reasons why your parents didn't make it into the promised land. Why that wilderness generation had to die. Why? Because they incited the Lord. They stirred up the jealousy of God. The anger of God. The righteousness and wrath of God. They did this with their idolatry. They did this by worshiping strange gods. They did this by forgetting the rock that had borne them, that had saved them, that delivered them out of Egypt. I mean, imagine that. That generation walked across the Red Sea as if it was dry land. And in just a short period of time, they start bowing down to the false gods of that land. How enraging would that be to our God, Yahweh? And God was not okay with that. God wasn't like, oh yeah, go ahead and worship Baal. That's cool. Go ahead and sacrifice your kids. No big deal. You know what? God was angered. The wrath of God was incited. And so this wrath, this justice, right, had to be satisfied Something had to have been done. See, we know what it's like to demand justice, guys. We know. Man, even from the earliest ages, children know justice, right? If you have two kids and you give one kid two cookies and the other kid one cookie, the one cookie kid is not happy, right? They're like, justice, right? I grew up, I grew up as an older brother and I always struggled with justice because whenever my younger brother got in trouble, My parents spanked him, but they also spanked me, even though I didn't do anything. And I was like, why? And they're like, you're the older brother. You should have been responsible for him. I was like, there's no justice in my life. There's no justice in this household. Even children truly know that. And as adults, it's even worse, right? As adults, when you are a victim of injustice, that is a bitter pill to swallow. Women, the fact that in our country, in our day, vast majority of our jobs, you guys make pennies to the dollar compared to your male counterparts doing the same work. Men, we're pretty quiet about that. But that's not okay. That's unjust, isn't it? That's unjust. When we see different opportunities given to people, better opportunities given to people because of the the color of your skin or the networking or connections you might have because your daddy is somebody important, I had a friend whose grandfather was a famous donor to a major Southern university. He and all of his friends were accepted. And I just, I just felt like it was so unfair. We know injustice. 
and we don't tolerate it. We're grieved by it. How much more our Lord? Why would we ask God to tolerate and put up with injustice when you and I don't even want to stomach that? The Lord's justice, the Lord's wrath, the Lord's anger, his jealousy must be satisfied. How is it satisfied? Through substitution. We're going to talk more about this on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But simply put, for now, I want to just define substitution as the work of Jesus Christ who took our place. Literally, that's substitute, right? We know what a substitute teacher is in school. Jesus Christ took our place on the cross. And you hear us over and over and say that Jesus lived the life that we were supposed to live and he died the death that we deserve, okay? That's what it means for Jesus Christ to take our place on the cross. Positively, he earned for us all of the law keeping, all of the obedience, all of the righteousness you and I were supposed to live. See, we were supposed to live a life without sin. And yet the moment we came out, we sinned, right? We were born, into iniqu- we were born in iniquity. Well, Jesus Christ was the sinless one, right? He was without blemish. He lived a perfectly obedient life. And he died the death that we deserve. We deserve to absorb and take on and experience that full cup of wrath that God has in store for sinners and idolaters. And yet Jesus Christ took our place and died on the cross. Uh, substitution is best captured by Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It's gonna go up on the screen. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is substitution. For our sake, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin. Right? He took on sin for us. Now, it's through the combination of these ideas, satisfaction and substitution, that we get the fullness of God's saving work. Right, the God's saving work, where God's dignity where all of his attributes are upheld and yet you and I are not damned. We have hope, we have life, we have forgiveness. How do we make these two things reconcile? And Isaiah talks about this in, verse, in chapter 45, verse 41. Declare and present your case, Isaiah says. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. So this is what God is telling us, that he is both a righteous God and a savior, right? And that is paradoxical. It's paradoxical because in his righteousness, what do we all deserve? Death. We all deserve to be cast aside. We all deserve to be abandoned and given over into our sins. That's his righteousness. That's the judge. That's the justice coming down on all of us. But as a savior, what happens? We're pardoned of our sins. We're forgiven. We're loved. We're adopted as his sons and daughters. And how does God do both simultaneously? Through the cross, through the death of Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man through Jesus Christ who knew no sin but became sin for us. One theologian wrote this, in the cross of Christ, God's justice and love are simultaneously revealed, okay? In the cross, guys, when you see the cross, would you see both justice and love simultaneously revealed? 
John Calvin said it in even a, in like a more radical way. He said this, in a marvelous and divine way, he, God, loved us even when he hated us. He loved us even when he hated us. Why? Because God hates evildoers. He hates wickedness. He hates sin. And yet you and I were corrupted. Right? We are diseased with sin. And yet he loved us fully in Christ. There's this amazing simultaneous love and justice in God in the gospel. In our third and final point today, I want to talk about the path to forgiveness. So first was the problem. Second is the purchase through Jesus. Lastly is the path. How do you guys get it? Right? If I were to ask you, how do we receive the forgiveness of sins? Right? If you're just an outsider, you might say, well, you're supposed to go to a thing called a retreat. And on the last night, you're supposed to cry and uh, like hold hands with your small group leaders and sing songs. And it's a really dark room. And then you, you know, it's really cathartic and you feel better. And that's forgiveness of sins. Right? But there's something more to that. Hey, real quick confession. I've never cried at a retreat. Yeah. <laughs> Never cried. I hope I'm still forgiven. All right. I'll say this. God lays the path to your forgiveness, like those first foundational bricks, through conviction of sin and guilt over sin. Okay, it's not all it is. Okay, feeling guilty over your sins, feeling convicted about your sins, it's not all you need for forgiveness because you need substitution. You need satisfaction. You need Jesus. But... The starting point is guilt. The starting point is conviction. The starting point is not being okay with your sins anymore. Realizing that there's a problem. Realizing that there's rebellion. Realizing that you are lawless and treasonous before God. Church, do you still feel guilty of your sin? Do you? When we have that moment during worship, where after two songs, we, you know, I come up here or DC comes up here and we lead you through a time of confession. Does that mean anything to you? Or are you just like, oh, Lord Jesus, and just tail off, waiting for the next song to come up? For too many of us, we go through the motions. For too many of us, we are numb and indifferent to our sin. And if that is the case, if we do not care about our sins, if our hearts are seared, from God, seared against any, any grief over our sin, then we will not experience the power and the joy of forgiveness. Uh, I told this story a couple years ago, but um, when I was at USC, my freshman year, my friends and I, uh, we wanted to play soccer. Yeah, we wanted to play soccer. And if you've ever been on campus at USC, we don't have that much grass, right? Because we're just downtown LA and there aren't too many fields. We're not like UC Irvine. Irvine, Irvine and San Diego, there's like grass everywhere. You can play soccer, frisbee golf, whatever it might be. But um, yeah, SC, it's just kind of scarce and limited. And so my friends and I were like, okay, hey, we got a place. We'll just go to the track and field stadium, right? So back in the day, it was the track and in the middle was grass. Now it's AstroTurf, right? Little upgrade. Uh, but back then it was grass. And so we got our ball, we got our soccer balls, gears and whatever it might be. And we went over there and like, we were just bummed out because the, the grass was being resodded, right? So they taped off the entire field and they used that orange, bright orange like mesh to be like, yeah, the field is closed. They had signs. Um, but they had just laid brand new grass, brand new sod. And so my friends and I were like entitled little USC freshmen. We're like, we're gonna play soccer. So we jump on the field, we start playing. 
no big deal, right? Fresh grass, right? It's awesome. We're having, we're having a great time. And then the athletic director at that time, I didn't know what his name, I didn't know who he was at the time, but it turned out to be Mike Garrett, right? Heisman winning, national championship winning, athletic director Mike Garrett, he comes down from Heritage Hall and he says, hey, you guys, can't you read? We're like, yeah. He's like, field's closed. And so all of us, he like lines us up, you know, hands are crossed. And we're like, you know, I was like the spokesperson. I was like, we're really sorry. You know, we won't do it again. And, you know, he looked right at us. He said, you're not sorry. You're sorry you got caught. And I was like, you're kind of (laughs) right. We weren't sorry. Because if I went to a prayer meeting afterwards, I wouldn't have said, Lord, forgive us for playing soccer on the field we weren't supposed to. Forgive us for ignoring a petty law, a petty sign, a petty rule that our, our school had put up. I wouldn't have ask for any forgiveness over that, right? I truly wasn't sorry. I was sorry that I got caught. I was shamed, okay? Here's the thing. You and I operate in that same callous, indifferent attitude with sin before God all the time. We are rarely broken and repentant before God. We're just sorry if we ever get caught. If your spouse ever finds out maybe something you're looking at inappropriate on your iPad. If your friends find out what you did the other night, your small group might find out, or maybe me or other pastors might find out like, oh, you've got these hidden sins, these hidden addictions, these hidden dark areas of your heart and your life. And your greatest fear is not being judged by God over those areas. It's what if people find out? What if my friends and family finds out, I will be ruined. If that is you, God is calling us to wake up, to realize that our sin, you know, you know what David said in Psalm 51? After he committed adultery with Bathsheba and after he had Bathsheba's husband killed in battle, you know what David said in Psalm 61? He prays and he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. That's what David came to realize. As he reflected upon his sin, as he was just had the blood of one of his mighty men on his hands, God took him to a place where he realized his greatest sin, his greatest fear was not what are these men, what are my people, what are my family gonna think about me? It's I have sinned against God. That's where you and I need to go today. If we have no conviction, no guilt over our sin, would you make it your prayer, guys? Just say, Lord, convict me of my sins. Send your word. Send your Holy Spirit. I'm tired of being numb. I know it's wrong. Convict me of my sins. Break my heart over my sins. Pray that prayer. And I believe God answers. That's a prayer God loves to answer. Now, there's another type of people here. You guys, you're like, hey, you have no problem with feeling guilty. In fact, some of you feel nothing but guilty. So guilty, you won't make eye contact. So guilty that you're like, oh, I don't know if I should sing. I don't deserve it. So guilty, you thought twice about even coming to church today. Right? There's many of us who don't struggle with the numbness. We struggle with the guilt. We struggle with the self-loathing and the hatred Now, there are two types of guilt. Because I said guilt, God uses guilt as a pathway to forgiveness, right? 
There's two types of guilt, though. There is worldly guilt, and that is a guilt that drives us away from God. That's not the kind of guilt God wants for us. Remember Adam and Eve, after they fell from the garden, they ate the fruit, right? They were, they were like bamboozled by a talking serpent, right? They should have just kicked him and, and just kicked him out of the garden. Instead, they listened to him and they were fooled by him. And the story goes like this. God's in, God goes down to the garden and he's looking out. He's looking for Adam and Eve and he calls out. He's like, Adam, where are you? Right? He's seeking him out, calling him out. You know what Adam and Eve did? They're hiding in the bushes like they could hide from God. They're hiding and they're naked and they're afraid. And so they grab twig, twigs and fig leaves and they're trying to cover themselves up. This is what happens, right? Worldly guilt drives you away from God, right? It separates you from God. It produces so much shame in you that you feel like God will never accept you, never forgive you. That's not the kind of guilt God wants to produce in us. But godly guilt, gospel guilt, the guilt that the Holy Spirit will work in our conscience, in our hearts, in our souls, when the Bible talks about having burning coals over our heads, right? That is a guilt that leads us to repentance. That is a guilt that brings us to an awareness of ourselves. We, it's like that moment where we're like, oh my gosh, I am living wrong. Right? I'm leading my family in the wrong way. I'm living my life. I'm having this, leading this relationship in all of the wrong ways. I need you, God. And we don't run from Christ. We run to Christ. Just like the prodigal son did. Right? He had that moment of self-awareness. Like, I am slopping it up with the pigs. I'd rather be a servant in my father's house. And so he had all the guilt, all of the shame, but that led him to his father's house. Godly guilt leads us to repentance. John Stott said, a guilty conscience is a great blessing, but only if it drives us to come home. I want to say this, guys. There's so many of us who struggle with guilt. You're so ashamed that there are certain sins in your life you cannot get rid of, right? You're so ashamed of the things that you've done, the things that you've said, the things that you've desired. And I just want to exhort you Use that guilt to go to Jesus. Use that guilt to go to Jesus. Don't hide from him anymore. Because when you go to Jesus with all of that guilt, when all of that failure, with all of that shame, Jesus, through his bloodshed work for you, offers you forgiveness and will free you from that guilt. He alone can do it. You can't. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have a savior. In Christ we have a substitute who took our place, who loved us to the point of death, who satisfied the full and mighty and, and, and terrible wrath of God. And we thank you, Lord, that you give us your Holy Spirit and your word to convict, of our, convict us of our sins. Lord, I want to pray for anyone right now who might feel numb to you, who might feel deaf to you, that, that is so caught up in their sin that they can't even see you or hear you anymore. Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit and the light of your word, open their eyes. Open their eyes to see. To 
see the effect of sin in their life. To see what life could look like, what life could be if they would stop trying to run it, stop trying to to rule and rather surrender it over Christ and your perfect reign. Father, I pray that you would truly offer us in this moment as we pray and plead with you, would you give us forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ? Set us free. Would you give us joy? And would you remind us, God, of of an everlasting and incorruptible hope? We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.